Moses led God's children. Forty years he led them through the cold and through the night. Though they said, let's turn back, Moses said, keep going. Canaan land is just in sight. There will be no sorrow there in that tomorrow. We will be there by and by. Milk and honey flowing, that is where I'm going. Canaan land is just inside. Though we walk through valleys, though we climb high mountains, we cannot give up the fight. We must be like Moses. We must keep on going. Canaan land is just in sight. There will be no sorrow there in that tomorrow. We will be there by and by. Milk and honey flowing, that is where I'm going. Canaan land is just inside. There will be no sorrow there in that tomorrow. We will be there by and by. Milk and honey flowing, that is where I'm going. Canaan land is just inside. Canaan land is just inside.
take our Bibles tonight. Turn over the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy <clears throat> chapter 2 tonight. Some time ago I started a series in the book of Timothy and we kind of we kind of got off track, derailed a little bit and kind of had to take care of a few other things along the way. I kind of want to go back to that <clears throat> and uh, continue in that study. 1 Timothy chapter 2, we're going to begin tonight in verse 9, but before we do, there's a lot of things here to, to cover. I mean, there's a lot of, I guess, we could uh, kind of summarize what we've been speaking about, what we've been dealing with. Um, so, you know, in our introduction a long time ago, we noted how Timothy, a little bit about his upbringing, and we noted that his father was a Gentile. We said that his mom and his grandma, of course, were believers, and <clears throat> we noted how influenced he was in the ministry by Paul the Apostle early on in his life and eventually he'd go on to be mentored by him and uh, his life would be one of faith and faithfulness and he would be one of the Apostles closest co-laborers as a matter of fact he would travel with him some he would also ultimately be uh, you know given some leadership through the Apostle and so forth and uh, the book itself of 1st Timothy is kind of divided into two major sections and we've started that division, how to build an effective church, we said. That's the first division. The second division is how to become an effective Christian. And so we started dealing with how to build an effective church. <clears throat> and uh, we've been addressing that topic along the way, and uh, we've been uh, just kind of sharing along the way. And we noted that uh, in the midst of this church in which Timothy now is pastoring, 
that the Apostle Paul is very concerned about the doctrinal purity of that church. And as a result, he sent Timothy there to Ephesus for the express purpose of, you know, exposing and ultimately extinguishing uh, the heresy that was being taught and, and promoted there in that particular place. <clears throat> now, again, he deals with Judaizers and he deals with the misappropriation of the law and a number of things like that. And um, so ultimately, Timothy is sent in. He's a young man. He doesn't have necessarily the amount of experience of some, but he was a man of God. He was a man of like faith with the Apostle Paul. He was a man of like mind with the Apostle Paul in that sense. And here he is being mentored by him and ultimately placed in a position of authority now by the Holy Spirit. And uh, he is prepared. He's ready. And uh, as a pastor, of course, he's responsible for the spiritual condition and climate of the church. And sadly, uh, there had been those who had been put away, had actually thrust away the truth of the Word of God. They wanted nothing to do with truth. They were uh, bent on apostasy. They were bent on uh, getting off on uh, issues that were not doctrinal and uh, scriptural. <clears throat> and so he had, a, he had his work cut out for him. And yet we see here, as Paul the Apostle writes the book of Timothy, he's trying to mentor and help this young man navigate through the complexity of pastoring a church. And that church was the church of Ephesus. And again, there were a number of issues that he had to face and deal with. And yet he would navigate them positively. He would come through doing well. He was capable. He was qualified. And he did a good job. Sometimes we get the idea that, you know, age is everything. But it's really not. <clears throat> Spiritual maturity is. And uh, age helps. There's an experience that comes with age. But sometimes we get the idea that a young fellow can't pastor a church because he's just not old enough. But the fact is, is that if he's wise enough and he's been given enough God, uh, from God, then he's able to do that. A number of young men in the past have started churches or began churches or took churches over, maybe in their early 20s, and they went on to do some great things for God. So age isn't necessarily the, depending, the, the, the ultimate factor in whether or not a man of God will be successful or not. I know some churches, if they're candidating for a pastor, they'll say, well, we're not going to candidate for anybody younger than this age, or we're not going to candidate for anybody older than this age. And they kind of put some parameters on that thing based on age. Well, I, I think we need to just obey the Holy Ghost on that and allow the Spirit of God to lead in that situation. But uh, nonetheless, uh, age does indeed have some benefits, but youth does too. Let's face it, the older I get, the more I realize that. Um, so anyway, as we move along, we noted in chapter 2, as we began chapter 2, uh, some time ago we talked about the fact that uh, we, we were introduced to prayer. And um, we were introduced to prayer because obviously there's a battle taking place in the church, and there always is, and prayer is one of those great uh, weapons that God gives to us. And so the Apostle Paul addresses this issue of prayer, <clears throat> and he talks about that to Timothy. And uh, the idea of telling God about men. You know, we're to bring men, women to God. We're to be there in intercessory prayer. But then also, we're, we're supposed to tell men about God. And so we noted that along the way. And now we come to the part of the scriptures where we're going to begin tonight. And we're going to look at the church again because he's trying to help it, uh, Timothy deal and, and navigate again through this complex situation and, and this aspect of the church. And again, there's always battles and warfare, and there's always power struggles, and there's all kind of things that take place in a church, unlike any other business or any other organization or institution, even like the home. There can be power struggles, there can be problems. And guess what he has to address in the church? 
Well, he addresses the place of women in the church. And so tonight we're going to address that because that's in the Word of God. So we're going to look at that in chapter 2. <clears throat> He's already talked again about prayer. And he said, now listen, we need to tell God about men. But then we need to tell men about God. And now we run smack dab into verse 9 through 15 of chapter 2 where the Apostle Paul addresses the fact or the point of the place of women in the church. And so we're going to take a few moments and note that this, this, this evening. So let's take a, a time to read that passage and then we'll go ahead and have a word of prayer. First of all, verse 9. <clears throat> it says, In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Let the women learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. <clears throat> we thank you again for the wonderful privilege that we have to gather in your house. Thank you for your blessed word. Thank you for its authority and just, Father, for its inerrancy. And, Lord, we ask tonight that you'd speak to our hearts. May we learn, may we glean from it, and may we grow. And again, Lord, we, like Paul the Apostle and Timothy, have a desire to see our church strong for you. And, Lord, we just pray that, Father, we'd heed your word in this area as we do any other. We'll thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. If I talk loud enough, maybe my voice will clear up. So if I start getting loud, maybe it's just to help my voice. But uh, Paul's often viewed as a very angry, <clears throat> very, a very angry man toward women. <clears throat> if, you talk to, if you talk to some liberal, uh, that, that, that maybe uh, somebody that doesn't use a King James Bible, that has a church where, you know, they would have a praise team up front and they would do this and do that, many times you'd find if you really talked to them about the Apostle Paul, they'd say things like, well, I think the Apostle Paul doesn't really like women a whole lot. I think he's anti-woman. Uh, some have accused him of being chauvinistic and insensitive to their needs and to them as a whole. <clears throat> but there's nothing further from the truth. Paul was simply a teacher. Paul taught the Word of God. The truth came from God himself. Paul wasn't in the business of trying to create his own doctrine. Paul was simply relaying the doctrine that God had given him, simply the teachings that Paul had shared with, uh, that the God had shared with him. So he basically wrote under direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit. At least we'd say that concerning his other books. And we'd say, well, yeah, of course, when he writes to the church, he's under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. When he, when he writes to Timothy, he's under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Well, when he writes about women in the church, guess what he is? Under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so, basically, this isn't about Paul the Apostle trying to get a few secret, some blows in because he had a bad childhood and his mom was too uh, authoritative and he thought maybe he'd put women in their place. That's not what this is about. And again... Paul was very warm, if you will, toward women in the church, as a matter of fact. If you take your Bible, not look today, but if you take a look at Romans 16, you'd see that he thought very highly of Phoebe, that he spoke highly of a woman by the name of Mary. He elevated uh, the mother of Rufus in chapter 16 of that same book. He also talked highly of Timothy's mother and grandmother over in the book of 2 Timothy. Um, he, matter of fact, he had an extremely dear friend by the name of Lydia, Philippi, I mean, this wasn't a matter. This wasn't a man who had an axe to grind at all. And um, the only people that would say that Paul hated women 
are those that are ignorant of his life and his ministry. <clears throat> so, the fact is, however, is that he wrote some things that are pretty poignant, uh, that are uh, pretty firm, pretty tough, if you will, in the culture in which we live. Now, I think it's important before we even move forward that we realize that the culture and the society we live in is anti-Christ. I think that's very important to keep in mind as you move forward when you look at the Word of God in any context, but especially when you begin to deal with these highly emotional issues in our culture. It's, it's amazing to me how easily people are offended today about everything, but especially if they feel that somehow someone's trying to deny somebody equal rights to something. <clears throat> um, I, I, I do think it's important that we keep in mind the culture in which we live and, and the, the, the uh, perspective that is viewed here in our world. It is not a Christ view. It's not a godly view. It's not a biblical view that we exercise in our world today. It's, it's a fleshly view. So we're going to read about some things here tonight that would kind of, it goes against the grain of our culture. But it does not go against the grain of a spiritual man or woman. If anything, it only confirms to them that there is a loving God and a very wise God who has a purpose and a plan for each person and a role to be involved and that each has their part and their purpose, but not one steps on the other. They all have a reason to exist and are both absolutely necessary. Now, <clears throat> let's go ahead and consider this issue starting in verse 9. We're going to see that as far as women in the church are concerned, they're to live in sobriety. We'll talk a little bit about that in a moment. But what should they avoid then? In verse 9, we see what they should avoid. Um, <clears throat> in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broidered hair of gold or pearls or costly array. First of all, regarding their dress, the Bible says that, that they're to be, of course here, women adorn themselves <clears throat> in modest apparel. The word for modest means orderly or well-arranged. The word for apparel in this particular passage points to that flowing outer garment worn by kings and members of nobility. So <clears throat> what we have here is Paul conveying the idea that a woman should dress in a way that is becoming a Christian. You say, well, what's that? Be specific. We may get more specific about that, not in this series, but in another one I'll share with you. But the fact is, is that we ought to be very aware that we are God's people, that we're God's property, and that we ought to honor God before we honor ourselves or anyone else. <clears throat> so, basically, he goes on to basically express, there's no room that exists for immodesty on the one hand, but then also he's going to make sure we understand there's no room for flashy, a flashy display. It just doesn't belong. Because notice, regarding their disposition, we see their dress, modest, but notice their disposition here. It goes on to say again in the passage, he says, uh, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly array. Shamefacedness implies an attitude of humility, while this aspect of sobriety has to do with self-control, or if you would, maybe a complete command of one's passion, controlling our desires, bringing them into subjection. And so Paul gives these instructions, and when he does that, he kind of has something in his mind. He sees this woman in his mind who, who is quietly dressed, whose demeanor is modest, and she's very controlled in her ad attitude and her actions, it's her outward appearance. And, you know, we can kind of imagine that Mary, the mother of Jesus, probably fit the bill here. She probably is very much the kind of person that Paul was thinking of here and the way she lived and acted. 
He goes on here in the passage to mention the fact that we're to avoid braided hair or gold or pearls or costly array. So the word for braided hair refers to those plates or those, those bra uh, braids in your hair, ladies, those kind of things, that can be translated elaborate headdress. So in those days, it wasn't uncommon for very rich people to really have very elaborate headdresses and to have elaborate clothing to somehow want to stand out amongst the crowd. We don't know anything about that today. But, but nonetheless, that was going on in his day. And he's, he's saying, listen, that doesn't belong in a believer's life. Matter of fact, he's saying ultimately that the believer's body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. And, and as a result of that, um, it shouldn't be used to display worldliness or wealth. That's not the goal of this. I don't, I don't put things here to draw attention to self or to somehow accentuate the world or flesh. That's not what I'm doing. As a matter of fact, he goes on to say that Christian women have better ways of accenting their personal beauty. And so he moves on into verse 10 now, and he begins to share with us some of those ways. And so now we see what should be avoided, but we know what they should avow now or declare openly. Verse 10, but which become with women professing godliness with good works. So now all of a sudden, this for a second, just let's take away some words here for a second. And um, there's those words in parentheses, which becometh women professing godliness. We're going to remove that for just a second when we read this. But in like manner, verse 9, also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness, sobriety, not with broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but with good works. Now, what's the motivation and what's the real basis or foundation for those good works in the believer's life? Becometh women professing godliness. So this is a kind of woman that God wants to be. It's more than just the outward here. He's emphasizing the inward as well. And he's saying, listen, if we're going to truly be the kind of women that God wants us to be in the church, then we need to be the kind of women God wants us to be in our lives. Christian women, according to the Apostle Paul, within the church and even outside the church, should display personal godliness and very practical goodness. You say, well, you know, are you a person of good works? You say, well, I do some good things. Well, he says that as a believer in Christ and as a godly woman, that ought to be something that is an outworking of your inner being. It ought to be something that flows. As a matter of fact, you're to adorn those good works. That word adorn means to deck or decorate to make beautiful, to add to beauty by dress, to deck with external ornaments. Now again, his emphasis isn't about broidered hair uh, or, or, or anything like that, braided hair, excuse me, but his is about that inward person, that godliness manifesting itself in good works. So those good works ought to show forth, not the, the big hairdo. I mean, let's face it, I mean, anybody can wear a wig, you know, anybody can buy jewelry, but not everybody can demonstrate and, you know, and show forth, you know, that inner beauty that God intends us to act it out and, and lived out through good works. You ought to strive to make yourself beautiful, ladies, but not with the trinkets and the trappings of the world, but instead with godly qualities and characteristics. That's the reality. Every woman in this building ought to strive to make herself beautiful. But not with just this, but with godly qualities and characteristics. 
Your goal ought to be to display the inner beauty that's wrought by the Spirit of God, not simply accentuate the outward beauty of the flesh. It's not what's bought that makes you beautiful. It's what's wrought in here. That's the key. And that's what the Apostle Paul's trying to emphasize, again, <clears throat> as far as women is concerned. <clears throat> it's not about trying to ultimately leave ladies in the dust. It's not trying to tell them, you have to dress a certain way because you're, you're evil and wicked and your bodies distract men, so you have to cover it all up. You know, that's not really the emphasis on it. I mean, would I be, I'd, be, I'd be ignorant to say that that's not a problem. I mean, a girl walks in the room today naked, I think every man in the room is going to be tempted to look. I don't care how old or young. That's a distraction. Eve had better put on some clothes after the fall. Otherwise, he would have been so distracted, he could never got anything done. It's a distraction. Now listen, nakedness is a distraction, so I'm not going to be stupid enough to tell you that none of it matters. But what Paul's trying to emphasize here, at least, is that there's more to it, and that what's most important is not what you're wearing on the outside, but what you're wearing on the inside. What's really there, not out here. Because if what's in here is right, then the outside will fall into place. <clears throat> so the, a, a believer, a young lady or an older lady's goal as a believer is to display the inner beauty that's wrought by the Holy Spirit. Dorcas, and that's a wonderful name, was adorned in that kind of fashion. Take your Bible, look at Acts chapter 9 real quick. Verse 36. We read about a woman by the name of Tabitha who by interpretation is called Dorcas. We've got a couple guys around here by interpretation are called Dorcas. <clears throat> okay, I shouldn't have said that, I know, because everyone's wondering, who's he talking about? Probably me. But nonetheless, there it is. Acts 9, 36. But let's read about her and let's note this woman because we're going to see that God did an unbelievable work in her life because of her outworking, the, what was wrought in her heart that ultimately made its way in everybody's life around her. Notice, now there was at Joppa a certain disciple named Tabitha, which by interpretation is called Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and almsteads, which she did. It's something, you know, it's amazing, isn't it? God doesn't, God's not concerned with the outward, only the inward. You ever hear people say that? It seems to me that he makes an emphasis to tell us that she is full of good works. Oh, she's saved. But works obviously are important for someone to save too. And Olmstead's which she did. Now notice, and it came to pass in those days, I know it's a transitional period, and I know somebody's going to tell me that that was still kind of tough because, oh, you, I understand all that. But let me tell you, I believe she's as saved as anyone because, anyway, watch what happens. So nonetheless, and it came to pass in those days that she was sick and died. And when they had washed, they laid her in an upper chamber. Now, understand that Peter's going to be summoned now. He's going to be asked to come to Joppa so he can comfort the believers and kind of be beside these widows that, and, and comfort them in their loss of this noble lady that, was, that, was, that, that had died. Verse 38, and for as much as uh, Lydda was nigh to Joppa and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent unto him two men desiring him that he would not delay to come to them. Then Peter arose and went with them. When he was come, 
they brought him into the upper chamber, and all the widows stood by him weeping and showing the coats and garments which Dorcas made while she was with them. Oh, look at these coats she made. Oh, look at these coats. And look at all that she did to help the poor and to meet the needs of others. She was such a wonderful woman. Such a, such a saint of God. She was adorned with, as you know, just in a, in a way that God would have all Christian women be adorned. She wasn't just supposed to be an exception. She was supposed to be the rule. And her beauty was so great in the sight of God that the Holy Spirit empowered Peter to raise her from the dead. In verse 40, but Peter put them all forth and kneeled down and prayed and turned him to the body, turning, uh, and, and turning him to the body said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes and when she saw Peter, she sat up. See, D Dorcas was given, that's, I already have a hard time saying that really, Dorcas. But anyway, Dorcas was given more time so that she could continue professing godliness in all good works. That's what she was doing. And God gave her some more time. Again, anybody can, like I say, slap on a, a elaborate hairdo and get all dolled up, so to speak, and, you know, wear the makeup and buy the jewelry and, you know, get the pearls and all that stuff and kind of make ourselves up. But, again, that outward beauty can be bought, but it's what's wrought that matters most to God. And that's what God intended for each and every believing woman in the church. So we note that women are to live soberly. But there's more. Now Paul goes on to tell us, and this is where it gets difficult for some, that women are to learn in silence. Verse 11 and 12. Notice what it says. Let the women learn in silence with all subjection. We'll stop right there. We're going to see what's essential, or what's foremost here, what's important. Again, let the women learn in silence with all subjection. Now, the word silence and subjection, they kind of, if we're not careful, they kind of incite wrath among women's rights activists. Advocates like that, they don't understand. They say, why should women have to be silent in the church? Why? why? I mean, why should they have to be in subjection? They usually don't ask that nicely. Well, we're going to note some reasons. What we're going to note down the road is that is that those reasons are rooted in the mind of God. That He's the author, not only of our being, but of all the universe. And that His Word is inerrant, and it is perfect. And He knows what is right, and He knows what is best. He knows what is proper, proper for His entire creation. And that includes women in the home. That includes in, women in society. That includes women even in His church. He knows what is best for us. And God's rules are not arbitrary or without purpose. Everything God does, He does with a purpose. And because the Bible is the divinely inspired and inerrant Word of God again, we got to take, we got to heed the instruction that God gives us. You know, on more than one occasion, I've, I've been guilty of opening an item only to realize that it needed assembled. And once I opened it and realized it needed assembled, a I would find amongst the, amidst the many parts a, a manual that said, you know, something to the effect of instructions and warranty and all of that mess. And I think to myself, as I viewed over that very quickly and scanned over that booklet, I thought to myself, who in the world needs those? I, 
I mean, it can't be that complicated, right? I mean, I'm not stupid. And so I began to assemble this particular item. And, uh, I mean, I'm assembling it, of course. I, about, half, I mean, I, about halfway through, I realized that I, I made a horrible mistake. I, I should have put C and D parts together before I put A and B together. Now, my intentions were good, and my only real desire was to successfully assemble that particular item for the personal enjoyment of myself and my family for years to come. But instead, I made a mess of it. I have to disassemble the whole thing, start all over, and guess what I used? The directions. Well, you know, the church is far more complex than any particular item that's bought and needing assembly. Much more complicated. The church is an organism. It's a living, breathing organism. It's rooted in eternity. It's made up of people from all walks of life. People from every part of the world. It's a very complex thing the church is. And you know what? The church comes with a set of instructions. And they're specifically found, especially found in the New Testament epistles. And we're reading one of them today. You know, it also comes with its maker's warning, the creator's warning. His orders must be observed that the church is to function properly. And in the church, both men and women have their place. Both are equally important, but the order spelled out in 1 Corinthians 11 has to be observed. We're not going to take the time to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You can look at that at some point, but it has to be observed. It's very basic. And we're going to touch on it a little bit here along the way because he kind of summarizes it as we move along in the book of 1 Timothy here. So his order must be observed if the church is to function properly. Now, the woman's role in the church, which involves silence and subjection, is not based, again, on just some whim that God had. It's based on the nature of the church itself and his knowledge of the nature of men and women. See, he knows you and I. He created us the way we are. He knows what's best for his church. Isn't it funny how you will have a child and you'll begin to raise that child and there are some things that you do that others will say, that makes no sense. Now, it's not unscriptural. If, it's, if you're not spanking your children according to the Word of God and you're doing some nutty thing to discipline them and it's not biblical and scriptural, then you need to fix that. But I'm talking about if you're doing things God's way and you just have a specific way you do it, maybe you talk to your child for five minutes before you give them a nice whooping, or maybe you put them in a corner for a while and make them do some finger, you know, you know knuckle push-ups or something, I don't know. I'm just saying, whatever you do, it may seem a little bit odd. It may seem strange. It may not even seem, in some people's minds, somewhat acceptable. It's not abuse, of course. But they would say, that seems weird, you know. I don't understand that, you know. And you guys do devotions at 2 in the morning. I don't get it. And things like that or whatever. Okay, I'm just saying. But, but you know what? You as a leader in your home, you as the mother or father, you know what's best for your home. You know what's best for your children. 
And you know, there are all kinds of people that are going to have advice for you. There's all kinds of people that are going to tell you how it ought to be. And this isn't really the way it should be. And we, I mean, I've seen it over and over again. A parent has to come down a little harsh on their child. And some friend of some friend decides they're going to tell their parent. And then that parent decides they're going to rescue your child from you. Stuff like that happens. You know why that happens? Because they really don't know what's best for your child like you do. Because that's your child, not theirs. They don't have the whole picture. You do. And you want to know something? Sometimes when it comes to the church, the people in the world don't get why things run the way they do. And they can't wrap their mind around the way God functions and operates because they're not his children and they're not part of his family. But then when we get here, it's a sad state of affairs if the people of God don't embrace the commandments of their own Christ. That would be sad. Now, that would be really bad. But see, we understand, even if we don't always get it, even if we don't really like it, we realize that God is still our Father and that He does know what's best, even though we're struggling with it. Down deep, we have to realize that He definitely knows who and what we really need most. And so this issue is not just some whim that God came up with. He doesn't just decide, I'm going to make one gender of my creation miserable. And I can't wait to see their faces. That's not how God functions. It's not how He works. So the role of women in the church involves what He calls silence and subjection. When we fail to submit to God's roles, whether in the church, the home, or society, we're undermining His purpose and plan, and we only perpetuate further dysfunction. Things don't get better when we do it our way. They always get worse. You know, when the patriarch Abraham, he realized that Sarah was too old to give him a child. And you know, God had promised a child, so Abraham starts to second-guess things, and he starts to think, you know what, maybe God is going to give me a child through, you know, one of, you know, Sarah's handmaids. Because Sarah came to me and told me that I could have her handmaid. And so maybe Hagar's the answer and the solution to my problem. Well, unfortunately for Abraham, things like this don't work out well. Extra women just don't fit in a marriage. Brother Joaquin, let me give you a piece of advice. Only one. You're not really allowed to have too many good girlfriends even. You've got to watch that one. I'm talking about friends. You can't be like, oh, I'm just Facebooking all my girlfriends. You don't have girlfriends anymore. They're just friends. They're girlfriends. So you probably won't like that. So anyway, Abraham didn't figure it out yet. So anyway, he, he goes ahead and he submits to his wife's, uh, you know, suggestion. And they're him and Hagar, and she ends up becoming pregnant. Now, here's the thing. When, when she becomes pregnant, of course, all of a sudden, Sarah's not as happy as she was before. She's really upset, actually. As a matter of fact, this woman, Sarah, now, she gets so bitter, so angry, that she begins to persecute Hagar, the very one that she offered to her husband. Hagar gets fed up with it. She can't take it anymore. She's about fed up to hear with all of the whining, the crying, all of the mocking and the, the name-calling and all of the treatment that she's receiving. 
So what does she do? She flees into the wilderness with her child. And while she's in the wilderness, she's met by the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is none other than Jesus Christ in angelic form in the Old Testament. And he says to her, here's what he says to her. Genesis 16, 9, he says this. Return to thy mistress and submit thyself under her hands. You know, there are plenty of reasons why God gave Hagar this command. But even though she couldn't understand it at the time, even though all she could think about was this and that and everything else that she was doing was taking place, she would obey God. Now, undoubtedly, what God was demanding of her probably was the hardest thing he could ever expect her to do, return and submit. That had to be the hardest thing. Okay, tell me I've got to go on a a, a hundred-mile trip, Lord, with just my baby and me. Tell me that I'm going to have to raise my child alone. Tell me that I'm going to have to deal with with vagabonds and, and thieves, and I'll do it. But to go back to that woman who treated me the way she treated me, who persecuted me the way she persecuted me, and I have to return and submit to her, that had to be the most difficult demand God could have made on her at that time. But he had a reason. She could have rebelled. She could have continued into the wilderness, but instead she obeyed. And you know what? Every woman in the church is confronted with two similar uncompromising words. Silence and subjection. However difficult they may seem, the reality is that a choice must be made to either obey and and obey, by the way, an infinitely loving and wise God or respond in rebellion. That's the only choice. How a woman responds to the Spirit of God on this issue is really an indication of her growth in Christ. That's a reality. So what is forbidden? And then we're going to end this tonight. And we're going to pick up next week. What's forbidden in verse 12? He says, But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Wow. So, teaching and trespassing are forbidden to women. Now, trespassing is forbidden to men too, but that word, that T, sounds good there in the passage, so I thought I'd throw it in. So, we have teaching and trespassing are forbidden to women. Paul wrote, I suffer not a woman to teach, nor so usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Paul's words, basically put, would say this. I don't allow a woman to teach. That's what he's saying. And, and Wiest, a Bible expositor, he concluded that Paul meant, I do not permit a woman to be a teacher. That, that, kind of, that, that makes sense. Goes along with what Paul the Apostle is saying. Paul was speaking in the context of teaching in the local church, mind you. Again, we're dealing with his church. He's saying... I don't allow a woman to teach in the church. Now hold on, before you lose your marbles, before you come unglued, before you're all like a barrel of monkeys. Remember that game years ago? Barrel of monkeys, wasn't that a good one? He didn't prohibit women from teaching other women. In Titus chapter 2, we see that other women are to teach other women. Women are to teach women. That's important. Matter of fact, the older are to teach the younger. That's something that they're commanded to do even. And he, he did not prohibit women teaching children. 
It, no, we see that in 1 Timothy 2 again, and we also see it in chapter 5. We know that they're permitted to do that. That's not something that goes contrary to the Word of God. Nor did he condemn Priscilla, and this is interesting. Priscilla, who along with her husband privately taught Apollos, as the Bible puts it, the way of God more perfectly. So Apollos and his wife get together, and they begin to teach, uh, I mean, not Apollos, but we see Priscilla along with her husband getting along with Apollos privately and beginning to share truths. And, and I can see her husband sharing a few things. She may have shot a thing in her too, maybe an extra verse or two, whatever. They've tag-teamed him probably a little bit, helped him along the way, helped him, as the Bible says, the way of God more perfectly. But the apostle absolutely reserved the teaching role in the church for men. That's it. That's as simple as it is. And he ultimately goes on to explain why. And that's what we'll pick up next week. So basically what we're saying is, biblically, the Apostle Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is sharing the fact with Timothy to the church at Ephesus that a woman is not to teach a class where men are there. She is not to pastor the church. She's not to be a pastor teacher. Because that violates... God's ordained roles and order. It's not personal. It's biblical. And so that's the reality. This isn't about a male-dominated society trying to bring women into subjection, making them do exactly what they say at all times. Now, that's not what this is about. This isn't about abuse. This isn't about taking advantage of. This is simply about yielding to God-given order in the church because God has a reason. And if there's a parent in this room today that's ever told their child something and they said, why? And you thought to yourself, you don't get it. Dude. And you even try to explain it and they go, I don't think, I don't think that's good enough. You know what? Sometimes I think that's how God feels maybe about us in the church. Sometimes we don't get it, do we? And he only wants what's best for us. So next week we'll pick up and we'll answer the question, why? Why is it that he does not permit women to teach in the church in that public role that way? At least amongst men or with men present. See, I don't believe it's right for women to teach in the local church because the Bible says it's not. And I'm talking about teaching any men. I don't think it's right to have a group of women here and have one man sitting in that room. I don't think she should be teaching that. Because biblically, she's not permitted to. Biblically. Doesn't matter how qualified she seems. She's not permitted by God. It's not about whether the pastor does or not. God doesn't allow it. That's his business. And so we'll talk about why that is next time we meet on Wednesday. Father,